Chapter Five and Six of the Grand Babylon Hotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Grand Babylon Hotel by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Five. What occurred to Reginald Dimmock. In another moment, they were all three talking quite nicely and with, at any rate, an appearance of being natural. Prince Aribert became suave, even deferential to Nella and more friendly towards Nella's father than their respective positions demanded. The latter amused himself by studying this sprig of royalty, the first with whom he had ever come into contact. He decided that the young fellow was personable enough, had no frills on him, and would make an exceptionally good commercial traveller for a first-class firm. Such was Theodore Rexall's preliminary estimate of the man who might one day be the reigning Grand Duke of Posen. It occurred to Nella, and she smiled at the idea, that the bureau of the hotel was scarcely the correct place in which to receive this august young man. There he stood, with his head halfway through the bureau window, negligently leaning against the woodwork, just as though he were a stockbroker or the manager of a New York burlesque company. "'Is your highness travelling quite alone?' she asked. "'By a series of accidents I am,' he said. "'My equerry was to have met me at Charing Cross, but he failed to do so.' I cannot imagine why. Mr. Dimmock? questioned Rexall. Yes, Dimmock. I do not remember that he ever missed an appointment before. You know him? He has been here? He dined with us last night, said Rexall, on Nella's invitation, he added maliciously. But today we have seen nothing of him. I know, however, that he has engaged the state apartments, and also a suite adjoining the state apartments, number 55. That is so, isn't it, Nella? "'Yes, Papa,' she said, having first demurely examined a ledger. "'Your Highness would doubtless like to be conducted to your room. Apartments, I mean.' Then Nella laughed deliberately at the Prince, and said, "'I don't know who's the proper person to conduct you, and that's a fact. The truth is that Papa and I are rather raw yet in the hotel line. You see, we only bought the place last night.' "'You have bought the hotel?' exclaimed the Prince. "'That's so,' said Raxall. "'And Felix Babylon has gone?' "'He is going, if he has not already gone.' "'Ah, I see,' said the Prince. "'This is one of your American strokes. "'You have bought to sell again, is that not it? "'You are on your holidays, but you cannot resist "'making a few thousands by way of relaxation. "'I have heard of such things.' "'We shan't sell again, Prince, until we're tired of our bargain. "'Sometimes we tire very quickly, and sometimes we don't. "'It depends—' Uh, what? Braxall broke off suddenly to attend to a servant in livery who had quietly entered the bureau and was making urgent mysterious signs to him. If you please, sir. The man, by frantic gestures, implored Mr. Theodore Rexall to come out. Pray don't let me detain you, Mr. Rexall, said the prince, and therefore the proprietor of the Grand Babylon departed after the servant with a queer, curt little bow to Prince Aribert. Mayn't I come inside? said the prince to Nella. Immediately the millionaire had gone. "'Impossible, Prince!' Nella laughed. "'The rule against visitors entering this bureau is frightfully strict.' "'How do you know the rule is so strict, if you only came into possession last night?' "'I know, because I made the rule myself this morning, Your Highness.' "'But seriously, Miss Rexall, I want to talk to you.' "'Do you want to talk to me as Prince Aribert, or as the friend—the acquaintance—whom I knew in Paris last year?' "'As the friend, dear lady, if I may use the term.' 
and you are sure that you would not like first to be conducted to your apartments not yet i will wait till dimmock comes he cannot fail to be here soon then we will have tea served in father's private room the proprietor's private room you know good he said nella talked through a telephone and rang several bells and behaved generally in a manner calculated to prove to princes and to whomever it might concern that she was a young woman of business instincts and training and then she stepped down from her chair of office emerged from the bureau and preceded by two menials led prince aribert to the louis quinze chamber in which her father and felix babylon had had their long confabulation on the previous evening what do you want to talk to me about she asked her companion as she poured out for him a second cup of tea the prince looked at her for a moment as he took the proffered cup and being a young man of sane healthy instincts he could think of nothing for the moment except her loveliness nella was indeed beautiful that afternoon the beauty of even the most beautiful woman ebbs and flows from hour to hour nella's this afternoon was at the flood vivacious alert imperious and yet ineffably sweet she seemed to radiate the very joy and exuberance of life i have forgotten he said you have forgotten that is surely very wrong of you you gave me to understand that it was something terribly important but of course i knew it couldn't be because no man and especially no prince ever discussed anything really important with a woman recollect miss Rexall, that this afternoon here i am not the prince you are count steenbock is that it he started for you only he said unconsciously lowering his voice miss Rexall, i particularly wish that no one here should know that i was in paris last spring an affair of state she smiled an affair of state he replied soberly even dimmock doesn't know it was strange that we should be fellow guests at that quiet out-of-the-way hotel strange but delightful i shall never forget that rainy afternoon that we spent together in the museum of tocadero let us talk about that about the rain or the museum i shall never forget that afternoon he repeated ignoring the lightness of her question nor i she murmured corresponding to his mood you too enjoyed it he said eagerly the sculptures were magnificent she replied hastily glancing at the ceiling ah so they were tell me miss Rexall, how did you discover my identity i must not say she answered that is my secret do not seek to penetrate it who knows what horrors you might discover if you probed too far she laughed but she laughed alone the prince remained pensive as it were brooding i never hope to see you again he said why not one never sees again those whom one wishes to see as for me i was perfectly convinced that we should meet again why because i always get what i want then you wanted to see me again certainly you interested me extremely i have never met another man who could talk so well about sculpture as the count steenbock do you really always get what you want miss Rexall? of course that is because your father is so rich i suppose oh no it isn't she said it's simply because i always do get what i want it's got nothing to do with father at all but mr Rexall is extremely wealthy wealthy isn't the word count there is no word it's positively awful the amount of dollars poor papa makes and the worst of it is he can't help it he told me once that when a man had made ten millions no power on earth could stop those ten millions from growing into twenty 
and so it continues. I spend what I can, but I can't come near coping with it, and of course papa is no use whatever at spending. And you have no mother? Who told you I had no mother? she asked quietly. I, um, inquired about you, he said, with equal candor and humility. In spite of the fact that you never hope to see me again? Yes, in spite of that. How funny, she said, and lapsed into a meditative silence. Yours must be a wonderful existence, said the prince. I envy you. You envy me? What? My father's wealth? No, he said, your freedom and your responsibilities. I have no responsibilities, she remarked. Pardon me, he said. You have, and the time is coming when you will feel them. I'm only a girl, she murmured with sudden simplicity. As for you, Count, surely you have sufficient responsibilities of your own. I, he said sadly, I have no responsibilities. I am a nobody, a serene highness who has to pretend to be very important, always taking immense care never to do anything that a serene highness ought not to do. Bah! But if your nephew, Prince Eugen, were to die, would you not come to the throne, and would you not then have these responsibilities which you so much desire? Eugen die, said Prince Herbert, in a curious tone. Impossible. He is the perfection of health. In three months he will be married. No, I shall never be anything but a serene highness, the most despicable of God's creatures. But what about the state secret which you mentioned? Is not that a responsibility? Ah, he said, that is over. That belongs to the past. It was an accident in my dull career. I shall never be Count Steenbock again. Who knows, she said. By the way, is not Prince Eugen coming here today? Mr. Dimmock told us so. See, answered the prince, standing up and bending over her. I'm going to confide in you. I don't know why, but I am. Don't betray state secrets, she warned him, smiling into his face. But just then the door of the room was unceremoniously opened. Go right in, said a voice sharply. It was Theodore Rexall's. Two men entered, bearing a prone form on a stretcher, and Rexall followed them. Nella sprang up. Rexall stared to see his daughter. I didn't know you were in here, Nell. Here, to the two men. Out again. Why? exclaimed Nella gazing fearfully at the form on the stretcher. "'It's Mr. Dimmock!' "'It is,' her father acquiesced. "'He's dead,' he added laconically. "'I'd have broken it to you more gently had I known. "'Your pardon, Prince.' There was a pause. "'Dimmock dead!' Prince Arabit whispered under his breath, and he kneeled down by the side of the stretcher. "'What does this mean?' "'The poor fellow was just walking across the quadrangle towards the portico when he fell down.' A commissionaire who saw him says he was walking very quickly. At first I thought it was sunstroke, but it couldn't have been, though the weather certainly is rather warm. It must be heart disease. But anyhow, he's dead. We did what we could. I've sent for a doctor and for the police. I suppose there'll have to be an inquest. Theodore Rexall stopped, and in an awkward, solemn silence they all gazed at the dead youth. His features were slightly drawn, and his eyes closed. That was all. He might have been asleep. "'My poor Dimmock!' exclaimed the prince, his voice broken. "'And I was angry because the lad did not meet me at Charing Cross.' "'Are you sure he's dead, father?' Nella said. "'You'd better go away, Nella. 
was Rexall's only reply, but the girl stood still and began to sob quietly. On the previous night she had secretly made fun of Reginald Dimmock. She had deliberately set herself to get information from him on a topic in which she happened to be specially interested, and she had got it, laughing the while at his youthful crudities, his vanity, his transparent cunning, his absurd airs. She had not liked him, she had even distrusted him, and decided that he was not nice. But now, as he lay on the stretcher, these things were forgotten. She went so far as to reproach herself for them. Such is the strange commanding power of death. "'Oblige me by taking the poor fellow to my apartments,' said the prince, with a gesture to the attendants. "'Surely it is time the doctor came.' Rexall felt suddenly, at that moment, he was nothing but a mere hotel proprietor with an awkward affair on his hands. For a fraction of a second he wished he had never bought the Grand Babylon. A quarter of an hour later, Prince Aribert, Theodore Rexall, a doctor and an inspector of police were in the prince's reception room. They had just come from an antechamber, in which lay the mortal remains of Reginald Dimmock. "'Well?' said Rexall, glancing at the doctor. The doctor was a big, boyish-looking man, with keen, quizzical eyes. Hey, "'It's not heart disease,' said the doctor. "'Not heart disease?' "'No.' "'Then what is it?' asked the prince. "'I may be able to answer that question after the post-mortem,' said the doctor. "'I certainly can't answer it now. The symptoms are unusual to a degree.' The inspector of police began to write in a notebook. CHAPTER Six, IN THE GOLD ROOM At the Grand Babylon a great ball was given that night in the Gold Room, a huge saloon attached to the hotel, though scarcely part of it, and certainly less exclusive than the hotel itself. Theodore Rexall knew nothing of the affair, except that it was an entertainment offered by a Mr. and Mrs. Sampson Levi to their friends. Who Mr. and Mrs. Sampson Levi were he did not know, nor could anyone tell him anything about them, except that Mr. Sampson Levi was a prominent member of that part of the stock exchange familiarly called the Kaffir Circus, and that his wife was a stout lady with an aquiline nose and many diamonds, and that they were very rich and very hospitable. Theodore Rexall did not want a ball in his hotel that evening, and just before dinner he had almost a mind to issue a decree that the gold room was to be closed and the ball forbidden, and Mr. and Mrs. Sampson Levi might name the amount of damages suffered by them. His reasons for such a cause were threefold. First, he felt depressed and uneasy. Second, he didn't like the name of Sampson Levi. And third, he had a desire to show these so-called plutocrats that their wealth was nothing to him, that they could not do what they chose with Theodore Rexall, and that for two pins Theodore Rexall would buy them up, and the whole Kaffir circus to boot. But something warned him that, though such a high-handed proceeding might be tolerated in America, that land of freedom, it would never be tolerated in England. He felt instinctively that in England there are things you can't do, and that this particular thing was one of them. So the ball went forward, and neither Mr. nor Mrs. Sampson Levi had ever the least suspicion what a narrow escape they had had of looking very foolish in the eyes of the thousand or so guests invited by them to the gold room of the Grand Babylon that evening. The gold room of the Grand Babylon was built for a ballroom. A balcony, supported by arches faced with gilt and lapis lazuli, ran around it and from this vantage men and maidens and chaperones who could not or would not dance might survey the scene. Everyone knew this, and most people took advantage of it. What everyone did not know 
what no one knew, was that higher up than the balcony there was a little barred window in the end wall from which the hotel authorities might keep a watchful eye, not only on the dancers, but on the occupants of the balcony itself. It may seem incredible to the uninitiated that the guests at any social gathering held in so gorgeous and renowned an apartment as the gold room of the Grand Babylon should need the observation of a watchful eye. Yet so it was. Strange matters and unexpected faces had been described from the little window, and more than one European detective had kept vigil there with the most eminently satisfactory results. At eleven o'clock Theodore Rexel, afflicted by vexation of spirit, found himself gazing idly through the little barred window. Nella was with him. Together they had been wandering about the corridors of the hotel, still strange to them both, and it was quite by accident that they had lighted upon the small room which had a surreptitious view of Mr. and Mrs. Sampson Levi's ball. Except for the light of the chandelier of the ballroom, the little cubicle was in darkness. Nella was looking through the window. Her father stood behind. "'I wonder which is Mrs. Sampson Levi,' Nella said, "'and whether she matches her name. Wouldn't you love to have a name like that, father? Something that people could take hold of, instead of Rexel?' The sound of violence and a confused murmur of voices rose gently up to them. Mph, said Theodore. "'Curse those evening papers,' he added, inconsequently but with sincerity. "'Father, you're very horrid to-night. What have the evening papers been doing?' "'Well, my young madam, they've got me in for one, and you for another, and they're manufacturing mysteries like fun. It's young Dimmock's death that has started them.' "'Well, father,' You surely didn't expect to keep yourself out of the papers. Besides, as regards newspapers, you ought to be glad you aren't in New York. Just fancy what the dear old Herald would have made out of a little transaction like yours of last night. That's true, assented Rexel. But it'll be all over New York tomorrow morning, all the same. The worst of it is that Babylon has gone off to Switzerland. Why? Don't know. Sudden fancy, I guess, for his native heath. What difference does it make to you? None. Only I feel sort of lonesome. I feel I want someone to lean up against in running this hotel. Father, if you have that feeling, you must be getting ill. Yes, he sighed. I admit it's unusual with me. But perhaps you haven't grasped the fact, Nella, that we're in the middle of a rather queer business. You mean about poor Mr. Dimmock? Partly Dimmock, and partly other things. First of all, that Miss Spencer, or whatever her wretched name is, mysteriously disappears. Then there was the stone thrown into your bedroom. Then I caught that rascal Gilles conspiring with Dimmock at three o'clock in the morning. Then your precious Prince Herbert arrives without any suite, which I believe is a most peculiar and wicked thing for a prince to do. And moreover, I find my daughter on very intimate terms with the said prince. Then young Dimmock goes and dies, and there is to be an inquest. Then Prince Eugen and his suite, who were expected here for dinner, failed to turn up at all. Prince Eugen has not come? He has not, and Uncle Arabert is in a deuce of a stew about him, and telegraphing all over Europe. Altogether, things are working up pretty lively. Do you really think that there was anything between Jules and poor Mr. Dimmock? Think? I know. I tell you, I saw that scamp give Dimmock a wink last night at dinner that might have meant— Well— so you caught that wink, did you, Dad? Why, did you? Of course, Dad. I was going to tell you about it. The millionaire grunted. Look here, Father, Nella whispered suddenly, and pointed to the balcony immediately below them. Who's that? 
she indicated the man with a bald patch on the back of his head, who was propping himself up against the railing of the balcony, and gazing immovable into the ballroom. "'Well, who is it?' "'Isn't it Jules?' "'Gemini! By the beard of the prophet, it is!' "'Perhaps Mr. Jules is a guest of Mrs. Sampson Levi.' "'Guest or no guest, he goes out of this hotel, even if I have to throw him out myself.' Theodore Rexel disappeared without another word, and Nella followed him. But when the millionaire arrived on the balcony floor, he could see nothing of Jules, neither there nor in the ballroom itself. Saying no word aloud, but quietly whispering wicked expletives, he searched everywhere in vain, and then, at last, by torches, stairways and corridors, returned to his original post of observation, that he might survey the place anew from the vantage ground. To his surprise, he found a man in the dark little room, watching the scene of the ball as intently as he himself had been doing a few minutes before. Hearing footsteps, the man turned with a start. It was Jules. The two exchanged glances in the half-light for a second. "'Good evening, Mr. Rexall,' said Jules calmly. "'I must apologize for being here.' "'Force of habit, I suppose,' said Theodore Rexall dryly. "'Just so, sir.' "'I fancied I had forbidden you to re-enter this hotel.' "'I thought your order applied only to my professional capacity. "'I am here to-night as the guest of Mr. and Mrs. Sampson Levi. "'In your new role of man about town, eh?' "'Exactly.' "'But I don't allow men about town up here, my friend. "'For being up here, I have already apologized. "'Then, having apologized, you had better depart. "'That is my disinterested advice to you.' "'Good night, sir. And I say, Mr. Jules, if Mr. and Mrs. Sampson Levi, or any other Hebrews or Christians, should again invite you to my hotel, you will oblige me by declining the invitation. You'll find that will be the safest course for you. Good night, sir.' Before midnight struck, Theodore Rexall had ascertained that the invitation list of Mr. and Mrs. Sampson Levi, though a somewhat lengthy one, contained no reference to any such person as Jules. He sat up very late. To be precise, he sat up all night. He was a man who, by dint of training, could comfortably dispense with sleep when he felt so inclined, or when circumstances made such a course advisable. He walked to and fro in his room, and cogitated as few people beside Theodore Rexall could cogitate. At six a.m. he took a stroll round the business part of his premises, and watched the supplies come in from Covent Garden, from Smithfield, from Billingsgate, and from other strange places. He found the proceedings of the kitchen department quite interesting, and made mental notes of things that he would have altered, of men whose wages he would increase, and men whose wages he would reduce. At 7 a.m. he happened to be standing near the luggage lift, and witnessed the descent of vast quantities of luggage, and its disappearance into a Carter Patterson van. "'Whose luggage is that?' he inquired peremptorily. The luggage clerk, with an aggrieved expression, explained to him that it was the luggage of nobody in particular that it belonged to various guests, and was bound for various destinations, that it was, in fact, expressed luggage dispatched in advance, and that a similar quantity of it left the hotel every morning about that hour. Theodore Rexall walked away, and breakfasted upon one cup of tea and half a slice of toast. At ten o'clock he was informed that the inspector of police desired to see him. The inspector had come, he said, to superintend the removal of the body of Reginald Dimmock to the mortuary adjoining the place of inquest, and a suitable vehicle waited at the back entrance of the hotel. 
The inspector had also brought subpoenas for himself and Prince Aribert of Posen and the commissionaire to attend the inquest. "'I thought Mr. Dimmock's remains were removed last night,' said Raxall warily. "'No, sir. The fact is, the van was engaged on another job.' The inspector gave the least hint of a professional smile, and Raxall, disgusted, told him curtly to go and perform his duties. In a few minutes a message came from the inspector, requesting Mr. Raxall to be good enough to come to him on the first floor. Raxall went. In the ante-room, where the body of Reginald Dimmock had originally been placed, were the inspector and Prince Aribert, and two policemen. "'Well,' said Raxall, after he and the prince had exchanged bows, then he saw a coffin laid across two chairs. "'I see a coffin has been obtained,' he remarked. "'Quite right.' He approached it. "'It's empty,' he observed unthinkingly. "'Just so,' said the inspector. "'The body of the deceased has disappeared. "'And His Serene Highness Prince Aribert informs me "'that though he has occupied a room immediately opposite, "'on the other side of the corridor,' He can throw no light on the affair. Indeed, I cannot, said the prince, and though he spoke with sufficient calmness and dignity, you could see that he was deeply pained, even distressed. Well, I'm, murmured Raxall, and stopped. End of chapter 5 and 6